is Revelations Radio News with Andrew Hoffman and Tim Kilkenny on the Revelations Radio Network. So welcome back to Revelations Radio News. I am still podcasting from, where am I? I am in the seaside town of Edmonds, Washington, and I am not joined by Andrew Hoffman, but I am instead joined by someone Andrew Hoffman calls the Babe Ruth of podcasting, James Corbett. Yay! I I want a crowd cheering in the background. Yeah. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. (laughs) Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's James Corbett and Andrew Hoff. No. Anyway, uh, thanks for coming on, James. Well, thank you so much for having me. I got so fed up of you not releasing a podcast. <laughs> I thought there's something I have to physically do about this. I have to put myself on your podcast just to get you to get one out there. I love it. I love it. And I'm going to start. This is the beginning of it, folks. And I promise James and the other listeners and and uh, I'm going to going to be putting out shows whether we got to buy andrew a new computer or whatever we got to do uh you know he hasn't had internet for a while and and uh on and on and on i don't want to get into the the minutiae of that especially while we got uh you here so let's kind of get right into it real quick if in case there's any listeners who don't by any chance know who james corbett is i would strongly urge you to search the archives or more importantly just go to corbettreport.com and uh, I go there, you know, quite often. I'm subscribed to every feed that he puts out. And uh, if you don't know about him, I suggest you find out about him there. So without further ado, maybe we'll just uh, we'll jump right in, James. We'll jump in head first, unless you want me to describe how I got into this in the first place. <laughs> so in 2006, I moved into it. No, okay. No, no, I'll pass on that one. <laughs> As I'm sure, uh, well, anyone who listens to your podcast will have a laugh. And there's actually quite a few. We get emails from people that were like, hey, con- congratulations, Jay mentioned you on his show. And it's like, yeah, we're awesome. So, anyway, uh, let's jump right into it. The world is a crazy place right now. It's hard to even keep track of it. I've definitely had some thoughts. So much has happened, there's no way to really even do a uh, synopsis of these last two years, or two years, <laughs> of these last two months. Uh, so I just, I, I threw a few questions together and just wanted to kind of get your current thoughts on it. As I mentioned off air, you know, like any good thinking person, you reserve the right to change your mind all the time. And, uh, as we come into this information, we kind of do change our minds and just kind of want to get a snapshot of what you think of this stuff right now. Let's do it. So you were one of the first people to bring up that the real mission accomplished in Iraq was the complete breakdown in the way of life and the complete breakdown of the political process there. What are your thoughts on what's going on in Iraq now? And President Obama's recent comment that Iraq has no prime minister. And then the, the follow-up addendum, as though that is not enough, is uh, are the free, is the free Syrian army and ISIS one and the same? So just go ahead. All right. Um, okay. Where, where to pick up on that? Um, well, when we, the, the strange thing is, I mean, I think everyone knows there's a bit of political amnesia in the political system so that, um, 
the fact that we can now talk about what's happening in Iraq as if it's somehow disconnected from the American invasion and occupation of, of a decade ago and, you know, the, preced- the proceeding several years after that is ridiculous, but it's actually being floated around now in the British Parliament where um, Tony Blair actually came out recently to say that we must get rid of this idea that we have anything to do with what's going on in Iraq right now. Of course it's not. It's a, it's a regional problem. And uh, he was thankfully taken to task by pretty much everyone in Britain um, because of those ridiculous comments. But it's, I mean, nevertheless needs to be reiterated that, of course, what is happening now is a direct result of what uh, what came out of the destabilization of Iraq starting in 2003. Actually, starting before that with the crippling sanctions that killed half a million children in the 1990s and the uh, constant bombing that uh, went on under Clinton as well. So let's not forget that. But... Having said that, I mean, let's talk about political amnesia of an even shorter time scale because it was just uh, recently, not not very long ago at all, that it was revealed, um, you know, surprise, surprise, that the U.S. was actually training ISIS troops at a uh, at one of their training facilities in Jordan. In fact, this was a, a special um, training facility that was being used to train insurgents for the Syrian civil war, quote-unquote, the, uh, the insurgency happening there, the terrorist insurgency. And uh, the U.S., of course, was involved in that, as was originally reported by Boiling Frog's post in late uh, 2011. And I, I, I did a video on that. Uh, Sabel did some reporting on that. We were um, ridiculed at the time. Oh, why should we believe you? Oh, these, these reports sound ridiculous. They were confirmed in mid-2012 by The Guardian and other mainstream out- outfits. And then uh, just earlier this year, it was revealed um, according to WND, which had the headline, Blowback, U.S.-trained Islamists who joined ISIS. Um, so subtract the ridiculous uh, blowback excuse, and what you have is the U.S.-trained Islamists who joined ISIS, i.e. the U.S. has been behind the creation of yet another phony terror group that is now terrorizing the uh, the region generally, and of course Iraq specifically. So what's happening there right now has to be seen through that uh, that that. That rubric, that that understanding, that this, of course, is directly to do with what's been going on with the uh, the direct American involvement in the Syrian insurgency, and I mean, the Syrian insurgency was really a lot of people who were exported from the uh, the Libyan insurgency, right. and the Libyan insurgency were people who were imported from the original Iraq uh, insurgency, and uh, again, it's just this crazy circle of of people who have been funded and trained and sponsored by the U.S. So I think we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about what's going on there right now. Um, and I forget what the other part of your well, question. Well, President Obama recently said in uh, his little press conference before he took off to go on vacation that uh, Iraq is in shambles and it has no prime minister is one of right. the things he mentioned, which is funny because they have a democratically elected prime minister who has been there since, well, I don't even know when, the last two or three years at least. So right. it's just interesting that, you know, like you said, political amnesia now they don't you know they don't have basically he's not he's not playing ball anymore no exactly right i mean this is um the the hubris is is incredible it's sort of whenever someone goes out of style or out of fashion they it's not only that they're they're some sort of evil president or something or prime minister they just don't even exist right so i mean perhaps that's just a tacit admission that the uh the government so called that was nominally ruling over iraq really isn't and Perhaps never really was. I mean, this hasn't been a, a, a well-functioning country um, at all since uh, since the invasion, and uh, and of course this recent destabilization has given the complete lie to that. I mean, uh, the Islamic State is now 
said to have carved out a, a significant chunk of Iraq that is now pretty much in their in their hands in one form or another. So, um, and of course, that also helps to embolden the Kurds in their fight to split off from the country and. Just all of these tensions are being opened up like an open wound. And so, I mean, perhaps it's just an actual, very real kind of uh, admission of what's happening on the ground, which is that there is no functioning um, government of Iraq anymore. And uh, insofar as that's just a description, I guess it really is true. And again, I think we have to understand what the roots of this are and and whose benefit it serves to have Iraq divided up against itself like this. And it certainly doesn't serve the average Iraqi person's uh, interests, but it serves a lot of other interests for people around the region, including some allies of the U.S. Sure. I mean, do you think it's... I mean, obviously, it has something to do with resources, but do you think it's all rooted in, in resources? What's, what's, you know, the kind of splitting up of what's going on over there? It just, to some degree, I mean, there's the, you look at the Kurds and they want to start, you know, Kurdistan or whatnot. And there, of course, they'd be cooperative with Washington. So that would be good. And then there's, you know, the South, which nobody really has any kind of control over. And they're going to say that the government doesn't rule. Is it, is the, is it just a, a just a, a grab? for uh, resources. Yes, I suppose so. I mean, insofar as all geopolitics, sure. I guess you could say at, at base is about the scramble for resources. But I mean, there's a lot that goes on that goes on top of that on in a social and and um, and, and in sense of people's consciousness. I mean, the, for the Kurdish people, I mean, they're not necessarily thinking of this in terms of, yes, we'll control our oil fields, although that's obviously part of it. But right. uh, I mean, obviously, it's it has to do with the idea of a Kurdish nation. Um, so that's something that's that that motivates these people in a different sense. And and I think you have a lot of the regional powers that, yes, I guess they have a stake in the resources, but I think they also have a stake in what's happening just culturally and politically. I mean, Iran obviously doesn't want to see a Sunni um, insurgency kind of run over Iraq. Um, and you have uh, Saudi Arabia that's that's concerned about uh, the idea of their own Sunni minority rising up against them. So, uh, sorry, the Shia minority in Saudi Arabia rising up against uh, the Sunni leaders of Saudi Arabia. So they are uh, nervous about their position in the region and want to make sure that Sunnis, uh, for example, in Syria and Iraq are uh, are in control. Uh, and of course, you have Israel, which on the record for decades has had the admitted goal of attempting to to keep all of these um, all of these various Islamic forces fighting amongst each other as a way of destabilizing them and um, continuing to assure Israel's military dominance and, and political dominance over the region. So everyone has their finger in this pie for different reasons. And some of the, I mean, I think the, the actual people on the ground may be vote motivated by real religious uh, uh, feelings and others by real feelings of uh, nascent nationalism or, or these things that generally drive people um, and to, to kill and slaughter and, and die. Um, but uh, but I, I guess at the end of the day, yes, it does come back to who will ultimately get control over the region and, of course, its resources. So in that sense, I suppose you could say it is ultimately about resources. Sure, I, I I would I would agree with that for sure. I think that uh, the the U.S.'s original goal here was to split it into three different parts. I mean, I feel I feel like even going back to two thousand three, you know, that was the goal. And now that they've they've done it, they they claim to have gotten out in twenty eleven. Although I read that article about a month ago uh, from the Navy Times or whatever that said that you know there was still tons of contractors in the in Iraq at the time that were. Um, technically not American contractors, but they were American contractors working for the Iraqi government. 
So that, therefore, that kept them as, you know, as us not having a, an interest in the place. Uh, as well as, you know, we have some of the big, was it the biggest uh, embassy in the world, U.S. embassy in the world there in, uh, in Baghdad. In Baghdad. Yeah. There's a, and then there's another embassy and one of the other parts that's splitting off another embassy there. I mean, it just looks from the outside looking in like this is... This this was the plan the whole time, and uh, it's it's funny to watch the the reaction to just the average people here on the on the ground here in the United States. Is oh we you know we got to get back in there and fix this, and it's like uh, and I've actually heard someone say that. So um, I think like I think you said it best. Like I said, mission accomplished, and uh, that's a, a little piece of art that I found. Right. I'll put as the- and, and let's. Let's address that because there are people out there with that idea. Well, we broke it and, you know, why ever, however that happened and for whatever reason, we got to fix it. Well, uh, even if that idea in some sort of generalized sense is correct, the idea that going in and further manipulating in a region which has been completely decimated by past manipulations, even if the people doing those manipulations are angels descended directly from heaven to do that, I think that it cannot be done that way. You cannot fix this region with more humanitarian love bombings. Um, and I think we have to get rid of that notion altogether. And so I think we have to confront that head on and directly. And I mean, just look at someone like a Ron Paul who is coming out and saying, um, who's been consistently against this and who, who has said many times in the past about how it's never going to be solved by, by more uh, military intervention. This is what caused the problem in the first place. I mean, it's just craziness what's happening there. And, uh, and the idea that this is going to be fixed by further intervention is I think the root of the problem that, that, that idea exists that, well, I mean, we've got to fix it. Well, how are you going to fix it? Are you going to just drop more bombs on the situation? Of course, that's not going to help. Sure. And of course, uh, funding and training uh, certain factions within the war is also not going to help. You know, that's not going to create democracy to uh, continue to fund warriors who happen to be for your interests when they're above the border of Iraq and in Syria and "Quote unquote," or against your interests uh, when they're south of it. Although I, I, uh, I don't believe that that's the case. I'm sure you don't either. Um, and also, it's meant to be, or we should we should at least take note. It's it's tragic that uh, the these are some of the oldest uh, Christian uh, civilizations, Christian uh, settlements in the world, <laughs> like ever. Like, uh, and, uh, they're, they're, they're being desecrated and, uh, you know, Christians are fleeing like crazy. And I'm not saying that they're worth any more than any other person is, but it's just interesting to note that, uh, that's the, that that's the state of affairs there. And then we, you know, in the United States, it's, you know, we got to get back in there and, and do something about this, but never really questioning, you know, who are these people? Where did they come from? ISIS didn't, was not, uh, you know, born in a vacuum, you know, their, their roots are, are right there with the, the U S government. Who's, who's telling us we got to get back in there and save the uh, people from ISIS. Unfortunately so. And I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, just think of the history and the culture of this area, if nothing else, and the, the types of, you know, historical landmarks and, and, um, and communities that are being broken up and decimated by this. I mean, it's truly heartbreaking to think about the tragedy that goes on there. On, on pretty much a daily basis and has been for years and continues to be for the foreseeable future. This is, I mean, it is a tragedy. And, uh, and I, again, I just don't think it's going to be fixed by more interventionism. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, on that note, I guess one of my other questions I was going to ask is, 
Is deconstruction the new foreign policy for the Middle East? I mean, I shouldn't even say new. The current foreign policy in the Middle East? And uh, is what what's the goal? I mean, it just seems like from Libya to Iraq, you know, to uh, Syria, it's just complete deconstruction to create. It looks like just to create destruction and chaos. You took the word out of my mouth. I was going to say it's just it is just the creation of chaos at this point, isn't it? Um, and there is no putting of the pieces in into anything that looks like a, a, a coherent picture again, is there? I mean, there's no, nothing that's on the table that looks like this is going to make any. I, that's the thing that I think makes it difficult for people to comprehend as this as some part of an actual strategic uh, right. plan is that, well, if there's a strategic plan, then clearly, you know, at the end of it, whoever, whatever. Israel will be the dominant power and they'll own all of this or or Saudi Arabia will suddenly, you know, reach out and take take over Iran and Iraq or or whatever it is that people think, oh, if there's a plan, then clearly there's going to be some end part of that plan where sort of the the dominant people behind that plan step out and and claim ownership. Um, But if the plan itself is division, is destruction, is chaos, then how do you see that plan other than what we're seeing right now? And again, it's not a plan that makes sense to a lot of people because they they tend to think that the uh, the political energy is used in creating, in uniting and creating whole pieces of of this chessboard. But I think just keeping people fighting against each other, keeping people in chaos, chaos, keeping people disorganized is an actual strategy for asserting and maintaining um, regional dominance. And this is, again, it's not really something we have to speculate over too much. I mean, we can look at all the various planning documents and think tank white papers and things of that sort that have been talked about and written about for many years. And uh, over at Land Destroyer Report, I know Tony Cartolucci has done a a lot of work looking at some of those documents that have been put out by some of those think tanks about, specifically about how to carve up the Middle East and the best way to get to Persia is through uh, Iraq and and, uh, and 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 Syria and all of these things that that have been openly talked about for many years. And uh, Seymour Hirsch did reporting back for the New Yorker back in 2007, talking about how they were going to go into uh, Syria and Iran and foment uh, rebellion through terrorist groups that they would fund and insurgencies. So it's all coming to to view. I mean, it is following uh, something of a plan. It's just that the plan is to actually create the chaos, and uh, that's working quite beautifully and so uh I, I mean again the idea that this is going to be fixed by the people who created the problem is unfortunately the level of political thinking that most people are at at this point yeah i think you're correct and i think you're wise to say that uh the the chaos keeps people from realizing that it's a plan it's almost like you know the belief that history just happens there's no hidden hand behind things that happen especially involving government is uh kind of encouraged by the the chaos that ends up coming out of it because clearly if there was a plan like you're saying then surely this would not be (laughs) what it was this chaos that has just happened right no exactly so um so of course we know order out of chaos is the old uh, occultic idea and Mm -hmm. it's one that unfortunately works quite well and uh, I guess we haven't seen the order side of that equation yet because I think there's a lot more chaos to go unfortunately and um, and that's the way unfortunately I see the trajectory of Iraq going right now I really do see the momentum right now being behind the breakup of the country absolutely and uh, yeah I don't I just I just wonder how that's gonna gonna shake out I mean what is what it's gonna end up looking like is it gonna be 
the three states of Iraq, or is it going to be constant warring? Are they going to try and keep it as one big piece? It's uh, it's interesting to, to to ponder. And then my I and moving just a little bit over to the, uh, I guess that would be to the west of there. We're looking at what about Libya? I mean, Libya is literally coming apart at the seams, and uh, I don't like to say literally if I don't have to. So my <laughs> my bad there. But I mean, it is. It's a it's an absolute mess. And uh, I think that your interviews with uh, the couple that was over there from uh, LibyanWarTheTruth.com were uh, extremely enlightening, as well as your interviews with a couple of the uh, heads of uh, the tribes over there. What are your thoughts on Libya? I mean, it's a it's a lo- completely loaded question. Uh, th- was the the general idea to again just to create chaos, or was Gaddafi that big of a problem? Is it about the gold? Was it about the gold dinar? Because there is one that is a good example of the U.S. and uh, NATO allies completely decimating a country from top to bottom and also a really poor reflection of the American people in their attention spans because that is no longer in the news and it irritates me to no end it just it literally it pains me to think that everyone who was all you know for oh yeah Obama's tough on Libya he's gonna go in there and get those guys remember the liberals were getting behind it they're like oh yeah this is one we can get behind he's giving Viagra to his troops and then the entire decimation of, of a uh, civilization takes place. And, you know, now they're closing airports. They've evacuated almost every embassy from different countries around the world. Uh, and, and the American people couldn't care less. You know, Robin Williams died. So let's watch three days of coverage of right. Robin Williams. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, no, the latest I have, the head of the uh, police in Tripoli was just assassinated, which, again, is just another sla- snapshot of the complete disintegration <clears throat> of whatever was left of that country. I mean, there's no time uh, since Gaddafi's removal that the nominal government in Tripoli has had control over Libya. Um, It was always just kind of a a paper paper mache regime, and it's really being exposed as that at the moment. And uh, the the chaos, again, that's being created there is just, uh, again, tragic and and nearly unfathomable. And uh, I've certainly noticed myself how Strangely enough, Libya has utterly, 100%, completely, and totally slipped under the radar. So, you know, who cares? You know, mission accomplished, dust our hands off, and walk away. Um, yes, I my sense is that it wasn't necessarily any one particular thing that, that uh, necessitated the getting rid of Gaddafi, but I think it was a number of things. I mean, you mentioned the idea of uh, getting off of the uh, the dollar, um, creating an oil burst um, that was not dollar denominated. Um, there's the question of uh, uh, the the aquifer that he was uh, mm-hmm. trying to to ba- basically make some of the resources available to the people. Um, he was uh, he gave a speech, a pretty remarkable speech, I, I believe, to the Oxford Student Union, where he was basically saying, in Africa, there are two choices. Uh, Africa, the African nations are facing two futures. One is an American-dominated one. One is a Chinese-dominated one. And he said, I predict the Chinese are going to win because they don't go and try to tell people how to run their country. Um, and look what he got for that. Um, so I think there were a lot of signs that Gaddafi... Uh, although they, I guess, had kind of tried to bring him into the fold in recent years and had kind of used uh, the Libyan government as a convenient place to rendition and torture people and things of that nature. But uh, at the end of the day, 
just like any serviceable puppet puppet for these these new world order henchmen, um, he was discarded like yesterday's news when when the time came. So I think there were a number of different reasons. I think Gaddafi just ultimately wasn't going to play their game, and uh, and he was gotten rid of. And why not use that as a fomenting and training and uh, equipping ground for for everything that's come on since then? As we say, Syria, Iraq, the uh, the ISIS uh, fighters, ultimately kind of coming from the, the, the Libyan rebels uh, or the people who were imported into Libya at any rate to, to, uh, to wage that war. Um, so it, it is this just, it's kind of like a, 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 an army that, that's being wielded around and, and just anywhere that they need or want to destabilize at any given moment, they just move position that army in their country. And uh, it, since it's this, you know, ragtag band of Islamist fighters, they can just move them anywhere they want, anytime they want. And, uh, and it, it, it's pretty evident what's happening when you actually start to follow this and, and look at some of the players. But uh, the, uh, obviously not many people are doing that. Um, and again, the political amnesia comes into play as the public can just be distracted by the next, by the next big thing, um, whether that be Robin Williams or whether that be, you know, um, whatever, Gaza or Ukraine or whatever the big uh, uh, thing at the moment is that we have to be concentrating on to the detriment of everything that's come before it. Yeah. Yeah, I think if, if you ever find yourself looking across the table at John McCain, James, run, run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it was you know he was hanging out in the tent with Gaddafi and talking about how it was a great place and this and that. It came out in the lippy or the uh, the cables, the WikiLeaks cables that he was over there and a few other people were. And then all of a sudden one day he was just a bad guy. And mm-hmm. I I think to top it off, he even old owed quite a bit of money to uh, or. Goldman Sachs had loaned him a bunch of money, which I think is uh, definitely not somebody you want to be in debt to. From no, the- <laughs> no, you do not. That's a good point. I, I, I don't really know about that, but I do know that there was something to do with uh, uh, the former French president Sarkozy and funding for his campaign, which, I, I don't know, had something to do with, with what was going on in North Africa and there was all sorts of shadiness in that regard too. Um, again, it's I, I think it's when these these types of maneuvers happen, and you see an entire um, an entire country completely demonized, and all of these ridiculous stories being thrown around in this coordinated propaganda campaign to get the public behind a war that only lasts a few months and then they can go away and pretend it never happened. When you see that type of thing happening, I think it's not necessarily ever just for one reason. I think there's usually a confluence of, you know, seven, ten, a dozen, twenty a hundred different reasons why something like that happens. And it just sort of works out for enough people that it can be coordinated in the same way that I would posit something like a nine 11. It only happens when there are enough different people who have enough different uh, agendas at play and at stake that serve to gain from something like that, that you would see something like that go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, to think of it in one uh, dimension is probably kind of short sighted. There's no, there's no reason, one reason for it all. No, no, no uh, magic bullet or anything like that. So um, it's funny, just the Libya thing. It really does just just irritates me beyond belief. And it was one of the first stories we covered here on Revelations Radio News was the people being imported from Iraq the first time, and all the Stinger missiles that went missing, and even like a container full of people being found in Libya that you know they had the air supply had been cut off and. They were all found dead, and it was a very, very strange thing. It just sticks in my mind as one of the first times that you know we did a show and we're actually talking about this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And now here it is, and it's just as relevant today as it was then. It's just that nobody 
really even cares anymore or even pretends to care, I guess should be the way to put it. So um, I know you noticed today you actually just put out a podcast about Ebola, and I didn't get a chance to uh, check that out, and I, I will, and I encourage all of our listeners to. But in that podcast, do you perhaps mention the strange similarities between the Ebola and the AIDS virus? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. And uh, this was something specifically that was brought to my attention by one of the uh, commenters in the uh, the open source investigation that I have up at CorbettReport.com right now. Members of the, the website can log in and I have a an article up about just trying to, you know, be a timeline and sort of a compendium of information about Ebola. And one of the commenters mentioned this linkage, which I then came across um, d- uh, independently. I was just uh, researching um, sort of bioweapons. And of course, there's a lot of people who speculate HIV was a, a bioweapon. And uh, and so I found this 2001 Reuters article that's talking about some research that was going on through a uh, Rockefeller University researcher who was leading this team that found that there's a protein that uh, a specific protein uh, is it TSG 101 or TGS 101? Um, <laughs> I'll have to look that up. But uh, this uh, basically these viruses um, infect a cell and then use a protein. Um, called TSG-101, there it is, TSG-101, to bud from the cells that they infect and then to uh, basically infect others, uh, other cells. And both HIV and Ebola um, both use this particular protein. And the, the researcher who was working on it said, quote, it's remarkable to see two such different viruses share a common budding me- mechanism. And I think uh, that's particularly remarkable because both of these diseases suddenly appeared in the late 1970s in Africa and uh, for you know it, it, it still there's no even official story that we can officially point to of where these diseases came from they just appeared uh, uh, Ebola first uh, out, broke out in Zaire slash Congo 1976 and Sudan also in 1976 uh, HIV AIDS was first identified by the CDC in 1981 so uh, it's, it's interesting to speculate about where this comes from and it is speculation I haven't done a great deal of research into sort of the origins of these viruses but I thought it is it's certainly an interesting connection Absolutely. And uh, I know you don't tend to to, to uh, say something is fact until you have proof to back it up, but I did want to just kind of elaborate and speculate on that one because I, I had also kind of run across some people saying the same thing. Uh, and it, it just it seems very convenient that this might be something that, uh, you know, at least possibly could the, the uh, could have the U.S. government's fingerprints on it. Well, regardless of whether or not it was actually created uh, as a bioweapon, which, as I say, I'm certainly open to that that possibility. But even regardless of that, I mean, certainly it has been investigated for decades now as a potential bioweapon because uh, it, it has been shown in, in laboratories that it can be made to be airborne. Um, there still has not been a, a documented or, or a case of, of airborne transmission of Ebola. Um, in nature, but uh, and there's still a lot of debate about whether or not that's happened, whether that's possible. But at any rate, it's long been acknowledged that Ebola could be weaponized, and uh, perhaps very effectively so, because it does have an exceptionally high fatality rate. The current outbreak somewhere around 64%, but the original 1976 outbreak had a yeah, I think it was 88 or 89, 90%, somewhere in that range, fatality rate, just absolutely staggering. I guess the good thing about that, if there is any good thing, is that uh, the higher the fatality rate, the much it makes it much less likely that 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 disease will go ep- uh, epidemic or pandemic, um, because it 
just basically kills off its host before the host has a chance to spread it to many people. So it's a lot more difficult for a very high uh, fatality rate disease to spread around. But if it can be weaponized and deployed against large segments of the population, that's that's significantly worrying. And uh, unfortunately, as I point out in the episode, um, there was some great research that's been done by uh, Truthstream Media, Aaron Dykes and, uh, and Melissa Melton, who dug up a 2012 Q&A panel um, that featured right. Dr. Yep. Charles Arntzen, who was this – he's this guy who's got his fingers in a lot of different pies. He was also one of the researchers who helped research the idea of plantibodies genetically engineering viruses into plants so that you can then reap the antibodies from them. And uh, that was the the research that created this ZMAP drug that everyone's talking about now, this experimental Ebola drug. Um and he was at in 2012 at this Q&A panel about, you know, the world at eight, 8 billion people. You know, will it be too many? Should What should we do about overpopulation? And someone asked him about that pretty point blank. You know, should we allow the, the world to reach 8 billion or should we take measures? And he said something along the lines of, has anyone seen Contagion? Referring to the Hollywood movie. Right. Uh, you know, just that's the answer. Genetically engineer a virus and what, they kill 25% of the world's population. So pretty disturbing. I mean, of course, it was treated like a joke and everyone in the audience kind of laughed at it. But uh, it's pretty disturbing when someone who actually works in that particular line, engineering, genetically engineering uh, viruses into, into crops, uh, jokes about creating genetically engineering a better virus to kill off large swaths of the population. Um, there's a lot of really strange biowarfare type of linkages with Ebola. And that's something that I think we should be worried about. Not necessarily right now, 2014, but I think long-term game plan. I really do think the depopulation strategy, if it is to be implemented, will be implemented um, through biowarfare. It's funny you mentioned Contagion. I actually recently heard an interview with, uh, I think his name is James Burke, the CEO of Participant Media on uh, 60 Minutes. And he's, of course, you know, uh, it's this 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 long fluff piece about how him and Bill Gates and all these other billionaires are giving away all their money to good to good causes air quotes and uh, he talks about participant or media and then the movie contagion and how it, you know that's a you know could could has served as a warning and is something that he's very worried about and uh, in reference to uh, population uh, growth. So it all kind of went uh, I've never seen Contagion yet, but I yeah. guess I might have to dissect it for one of my film literature New World Order podcasts. Well, and look into I encourage everybody out there to do some research into James Burke uh, from Participant Media because he is a left leaning and I mean all the way left, like we're all going to die from global warming. And instead of so he, he makes his billion somehow, I don't even remember how, and decides that his way to join the Bill and Melinda Gates, I'm going to give my millions away or billions away club is to create this media company. And if you look at the movies that they've put out, uh, participant media, I think they've actually put out, let's see if I could find a list of their, of their movies. Um, uh, to do, do, I believe, let's see here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I guess, uh, shoot. Anyway, uh, somebody could could go ahead and look at that. But yeah, Contagion is on there. And I felt like that recent one with uh, Jeremy Scahill was one, but I, I could be wrong on that. So anyway, I, anyway, just something to look at, participant media and uh, what the goal is there. 
Uh, those are, they've even done some good movies, though. I remember Food, Inc. Food, Inc. was a great movie. And that was also done by participants. How about the Internet's own boy? The- <laughs> I'm looking at participantmedia.com. Apparently, that's one of their films. The Internet's own boy was a great movie. I just watched the other day, although hmm. it was uh, a little bit less than ideal in the way that it tried to wrap up uh, mm. his, uh, his clear, clear cut. Um, of course, we're talking about Aaron Schwartz. And... Uh, Anyway, so anyway, an inconvenient truth. Yeah, an, it, yeah, an inconvenient truth. Uh, Syriana, which I talked about on my podcast. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah interesting. I, I, you know, to be honest, I don't really know anything about participant media or James Burke, but I'll have to look into it now. Yeah, I'll find a clip of that and maybe I'll, I'll either play it in the show or just I'll just probably just send you a link and put a link in the show notes of uh, him talking about him creating participant media to further his own political agenda, and it was just it just seems so warm and fuzzy and lovey-dovey if you agreed with his political agenda but it was seemed so nefarious when you realize that his whole goal of giving back was to create this propaganda arm hmm. and yeah well and and let's keep in mind i mean it's not just contagion but there's been any number of films in the last decade or so about various pandemic outbreaks and how they're used to depopulate the world. And I have to go back and refresh my uh, memory about, uh, what's it called? 12 monkeys. Yes. And, um, and uh, I'm thinking V for Vendetta. Those are kind of movies that stick out for me, but I know there's been many, many more about various types of zombie apocalypses. And I think it really is an idea that's being seeded in the consciousness of, uh, of the, sort of general public right now that you know uh, eventually there is going to be some kind of big pandemic and we'll all just have to hunker down and wait to be turned into zombies and uh unfortunately i mean a lot of people are going to line up for whatever kind of you know great wonderful wonder drug they they offer in the wake of the the big pandemic and i can just see this agenda unfolding unless we really start to wake up to it which of course is a part of the plot of the movie contagion jude law is of course a blogger who is the bad guy in the show where he gets on the, you know, the computer and the radio waves and tells people don't take the drug, the drug that, you know, is supposed to cure it is what's causing it. Don't take it. And, uh, I'll never forget one of the quotes in there said a, a blog was nothing but, um, what did he say? He said a blog was nothing but uh, graffiti with punctuation. <laughs> Interesting. Well, now I really will have to watch that uh, piece of trash, and we will have to dissect it on my podcast. There you go. Let's 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 do that. It should be easy to dissect. I I predict that you won't be able to finish it in one go. Your stomach will will, yeah. will churn as it goes. So, anyway, as we've gone through uh, these different political things, and then on to uh, viruses, here's a little bit more lighthearted one, just basically on propaganda. Uh, what do you think of the recent story that was all over the internet saying that? "Quote unquote," Russian hackers have hacked a billion usernames and passwords. Yeah, what to make of this? Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to go out there and say that I'm not actually skeptical about the idea that Russian hackers exist. Sure, that there are Russian botnets, okay. that there are Russian criminal syndicates that operate um, in this way. Um, the fact that they are Russian. I think seems somewhat secondary, but of course it makes wonderful <laughs> propaganda fodder, which is perhaps why we are so constantly exposed to it. I mean, one wonders if there was a criminal um, hacker network in America that was doing similar things, whether they would be called American hackers or if they would just be called hackers. Um, so that's part of it. But I mean, I, I, I'm just looking at uh, a ZDNet article from 
2005, actually. Uh, Russian hackers, the best in the world. And uh, it's, <laughs> quoting, it's quoting the uh, uh, Russian police cybercrime division uh, chief, Boris Miroshkinov. Miroshkinov. Um, everyone knows that Russians are good at maths. Our software writers are the best in the world. But that's why our <laughs> hackers are, in the, are the best in the world. So it's kind of bizarre. I mean, there's almost this patriotic pride in pumping up your own hacking community. Um, when you look at some of the big you know, st- uh, operations to steal, steal billions of passwords. I mean, I do tend to imagine there is going to be some level of state complicity behind that. Um, what state and in what way that complicity is offered, I'm not sure. But let's keep in mind that the probably most amazing piece of hacking ever devised, um, right. which, of course, was meant to target the Iranian nuclear program, uh, Stuxnet, was, of course... Eventually revealed, although everyone knew it all along, to be a U.S. slash Israel um, intelligence operation. And again, that's New York Times. That's mainstream news. So um, so I, I think when we look at main, like major, huge, world-shaking hacking events, we have to see that there are entire, I mean, uh, billions of dollars of resources being devoted by multiple countries now to, be, to, to implement their own sort of state cyber hacking units in their in usually under their military as is the case in america as is the case in china so uh i don't know i mean i think russian hackers do exist um the extent to which they operate completely independently of whatever governments i'm not sure of but uh again as i say it does make a good propaganda father fodder and that's exactly why we will always see them addressed as russian hackers rather than simply as hackers well, I will agree with you that Russian hackers probably do exist. I also uh, believe that it's being used just for propaganda uh, means. But this one I found to be especially grievous because it I swear they made this story up. That someone somewhere just said, I have an idea. Because when I heard about this story, my wife said, hey, did you hear? And she told me what she had heard on the news. And I my immediate reaction was... And I didn't mean to, to kind of grill her or anything. I just asked the first question that came out of my mouth was, on what website? And she said, well, just all of them. And I thought, oh, good. So this story doesn't make any sense. And then she was and – and I said, well, tell me more about this. They said, well, yeah. And then she, they said if you were uh, – if you know, just you should – everyone should pretty much just assume that their passwords have been hacked and go in and change them all. And I just thought – Wow, what a crazy story. There's no basis, in fact, in any of it, okay? So hackers, other people who have computers who are trying to get your passwords from Russia, presumably the enemy, have taken usernames and passwords. Like, where would you go to get usernames and passwords? Would you have to go to, I mean, you have to go to Facebook and YouTube, and, and then wouldn't there be a breach of all of those, and then we'd hear about it? And then the idea that we should all assume that ours are lost and then re-enter them almost just sounds like a like a mass fishing operation i mean it just it, the whole thing was mm, kind of yeah. just a no re- actually that's interesting because i have a bunch of yahoo and hotmail type webmail addresses that i've accumulated over the years and i noticed that all of them in the last few months have made me change my passwords made me change my passwords in in, in strange ways that i have to connect my email to another email yep and then use a security code and all of this, and, and they want my cell phone. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see how, how they could just say, oh, yeah, okay, someone stole all our passwords. You have to change, and oh, you have to give us your cell phone number or whatever. I mean, there's clearly uh, that element to it, and, and you're exactly right. I mean, this brings up the entire specter of cyber false flags, 
Because as has been said many times in this whole idea of, of a cyber and a cyber 9-11, cyber terrorism, how do you even know that what they say is taking place is taking place? I mean, the only person who will really know, I guess, is the server administrator of the server in question. And even then, do they really know what's being done to that server from behind the scenes by an NSA or whatever intelligence agency that has whatever backdoor access to through whatever manipulated means, um, whether that be physical access to hardware or or uh, links to um, backdoors through the Internet or whatever. I mean, there's uh, this is just a realm in which you don't even know what is happening, at least with uh, with a false flag like a 9-11 or something. I mean, everyone sees and knows what is physically happening. But when it comes to cyber terrorism, they can just say there's an attack on our cyber infrastructure. We have to go to war with China. I mean, it is craziness to think that of how quickly we're being led into this without even really thinking about the ramifications. Absolutely. Uh, my co-host, Andrew, actually, I brought him on to the uh, email service that I use, which is a paid for service. Um, because he was having so many of those problems with Yahoo, they made him connect two different accounts and his phone number. And then they still were, you know, he still had some sort of complications with it and whatnot. And uh, we mo promptly moved all his stuff over to this other other service that I use. So um, I think that this stuff is hitting kind of everybody where, where, not necessarily where it hurts, but just it is affecting everybody in some small way. And we're all connected, you know, so what a magic word to use is, oh, cyber, it's a cyber crime. And, and we just have to believe that the powers that shouldn't be uh, are telling us the truth that uh, Russian hackers have hacked your passwords, which is just, uh, just you know, it reminds me of uh, 1984 and more ways than one. It is a increasingly relevant book, isn't it? And in fact, um, as we speak, as we're recording this conversation, I'm working on a uh, an eye opener report for Boiling Frogs that's going to be talking about double speak and the interesting comments that uh, that Obama just made um, last week. Uh, we tortured some folks. We tortured. Yeah. Hey, you know what? We tortured some folks. But the the key here is that we don't need to feel. Oh, what was the word he used? Uh, sanctimonious about our torturing of some folks. You know, I understand that they did, but they're real patriots that were under a lot of stress, and sometimes what we did was wrong, but you know... Sometimes it was right. Sometimes we gotta feel not so sanctimonious, or mm. something, but it's basically America, and I'm going on vacation. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs> How'd I do? How'd I Ladies do? and gentlemen of the United States, we tortured some folks. Now I'm going to go play some golf. Yeah, we tortured some folks, and and I think it's important that we don't feel too sanctimonious about it. I'm off to Camp uh, David. Uh, How'd I yeah. do? It's pretty close. It's pretty yeah, I I thought Obama was in the room. <laughs> That's crazy. So you also have uh, been writing for the International Forecaster. As Julian Charles once said, you clearly own a time machine to do all of this work. Um, and in your work for the International Forecaster, I am not going to ask you to predict the future, but just want to hear what, you what, what your thoughts are on the idea of a student loan or even an auto loan bubble. Well, let's address student loan bubble because I did write about that recently and uh, it is uh, obviously something that affects a growing number of people throughout the United States. Uh, student loans are now uh, at $1 trillion of outstanding loan uh, debt, which makes it the second largest loan uh, category of loan debt in the United States, uh, second only to mortgages, but ahead of auto loans, ahead of credit cards, which is a pretty crazy 
a situation for a lot of different reasons. I mean, first and foremost, for people who are in the current economy, I think uh, there uh, you don't have to go very far. You could uh, throw a stone and find probably three or four people within throwing distance who have a story about either themselves or someone else they know who has X and Y and Z degrees and credentials who can't find any job more glorified than sweeping up at McDonald's or something of that sort. And despite the fact that this has been the case for decades now and that um, employment – uh, abil- opportunities for employment within the field of study have been declining for some time now. Uh, people still are being told and still, for the large, to a large extent, believe that college uh, education is necessary for, for everyone, for anyone who doesn't basically want to be a garbage man when they grow up. You, I mean, of course you need a college degree. I mean, obviously, I think fundamentally we have to challenge that assertion. But the economics of it show, I think, without a doubt that there is a bubble that's happening right now. And that bubble, the, the growth of that bubble, the blowing up of that bubble can be traced back directly to growing U.S. government intervention in the student loan markets. Like U.S. government intervention or government intervention, I should say, in, in any market will always create a, a bubble, will always create the incentive for people to uh, to blow that bubble up. So, too, is that happening in the student loan market. And that's seen through some of the uh, the, the lenders that are in that market. Is it uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac? Uh, whichever one isn't about mortgages is about student loan debt and has been underwriting a lot of that. But there's all sorts of problems with, uh, with the ways that they've been doing it that and whistleblowers who've come out to talk about how they um, they actively encourage people to go into forbearance on the debt so that the debt can ru- run up even higher so that they can get higher interest rates and, and higher overall loan payments in the future. I mean, all sorts of unscrupulous practices are now coming to the student loan market. And again, this is all being predicated on the idea that everyone and his dog who's, who's going to do anything at all needs a college education, which I think is demonstrably untrue. And I, I mean, I know it's difficult to step outside of one's own times to see the bigger perspective, but I mean, even a few generations ago, uh, academia was still basically the preserve of of people who were interested in academic work or who needed specialized technical training. And yet now it seems you know everyone and 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 his dog needs some sort of you know humanities degree or something to function. And I'm guilty of of this as anyone. I got my English literature degree and followed that up with a master's in Anglo Irish literature. And here I am making good use of that podcasting on matters political and geopolitical and financial and things of this sort. So I, I too fell victim to that to a large extent, but luckily I escaped without student loan debt. A lot of people these days are not so um, able to do that because unfortunately tuitions are rising and rising and rising at an exceptionally extreme rate. Um, I, I can't remember the exact figures, but something like in the same period that student loan debt went up or student tuition went up 400 uh, percent, CPI, the, the inflation rate went up by by 12 percent or something along those lines. So it's not even close in terms of um, where tuition should be as opposed to where the, the rest of the economy is. And again, that's being helped along because a lot of money and a lot of banks are coming in to help blow this bubble up because there is a a credit opportunity for them. And uh, again, I think we have to fundamentally challenge the underlying assumptions. And uh, and for people who are in student loan debt, I sympathize completely because there are more people. And and I actually linked to a uh, to a documentary in the article that you're talking about for the forecaster 
uh, of a documentary of people with stories like I now have to uh, question whether I can buy uh, whether I can buy a house, whether I can even have a family, whether I can have a child um, because of my student loan debt. And when you start getting to that level of commitment over a debt that's accrued in from the time you're 18 ish to the time you're 22 ish. I mean, it's insane to think that we're putting ourselves into debt slavery to the banksters from that early in age to the point where it affects every decision we make in our lives. And we have to kick back against that idea. Absolutely. I also have a graphic design degree and I'm a car salesman. So, you know, it is, it's, uh, it is everyone that I know, you know, not everyone, but I mean, many, many, many people that I know are in the, the exact same position. I was just thinking also, uh, about the, indoctrination like nature of schools as well as accruing that debt but just the uh uh the brainwashing that takes place you know i had to take a you know certain number of humanities courses or whatnot and i had to take what was the one i can't even remember there was but there was a couple courses that i was forced to take and everyone had to take them across the board and it was just you know total and you know kind of political indoctrination um and i think that that's also valuable for the uh, powers that shouldn't be, as well as you know, putting people into uh, into debt right away. Um, it's very sad to think that people wouldn't be having children uh, because of uh, some something that, and it's so nefarious too, right? It's not it's not like they're you know falling into a get rich quick scheme. They're thinking that you know people are thinking this is going to help them, that this is the way to a secure future. You know, my. Uh, my favorite take on it was when Dave Chappelle said that he was the first member of his family not to go to college, and everyone kind of sat there, and he says, I was the first member of my family that wasn't a slave. <laughs> and nice. I think yeah. it's true. I mean, I think to yeah. the, at this point, it's uh, unless you're going for a technical thing, I, you know, I mean, I don't want to say. And he's probably much richer than all of his other family combined, so there Abs- you go. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, not that it's about that, but it just goes sure. to show that this idea that failure is inherent in, you know, not going to college is itself... I mean, a lie. And and a lie that's spectacular in the case of some of the notable uh, dropouts. Absolutely. I mean, whether you look at a Bill Gates or a Zuckerberg or whatever. Yeah, my lo- the NWO minions. My know. local hero over here, Bill Gates, He uh, <laughs> he's like one of the worst students ever. I think Richard Branson is a high school dropout. I mean, many of these guys, the only thing that uh, marks their, you know, that, that is consistent is either they're from an, a rich or elite family or they had a pretty tough upbringing. Those are mm-hmm. really the only two things that you can point to, not where they went to school. And I believe Morris Strong, the, uh-huh. uh, the, the, the man behind the global warming scare, I believe he was a junior high dropout who uh-huh. was uh, tapped by Rockefeller early on in his career. So. So, but, you know, there's one field we didn't mention. If you want to become a politician... You got to go and you got to pledge to some uh, some sorority or some you know secret society, yeah. and then mm-hmm. then you can. Uh, th- there's one uh, one occupation where you kind of need that. So, well, if yeah, if you want to be involved in the intelligence agencies, it certainly helps to be in Skull and Bones. <laughs> it also helps yeah. to be in one of their breeding grounds on the East Coast. They, mm. they call an Ivy League school. But, exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the other sort of part that I mentioned, and I did mention I'm a, I'm a car salesman, which is it sometimes loathes me to say, but it's an interesting business. It's funny. It is what you make of it. People think of them as, uh, as, uh, insincere, but if you can be, you're not a used car salesman, are you? I am not. I'm a new well, car salesman. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do wear a plaid suit every day though, so it's no big deal. <laughs> but one of the things I noticed, and it's actually started to get some play in the media lately is auto loans. 
holy cow. <laughs> uh, there are people getting into cars now, auto loans. You know, for instance, uh, I've, you know, I know of someone within the last few weeks who got a $19,000 car with a 25% interest rate. Hmm. Uh, That's... What's that? It's ridiculous. Right. So he's going to end up paying two times, maybe even three times as much yeah. as, for the car as it was actually worth because his credit mm-hmm. is bad. You know, the, 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 the banks say that he's not trustworthy. And so he ends up paying this huge amount. And then he's thrilled to get this car because he never thought he could. And it's like his, yeah. you know, he's like, thr- and so I constantly see stuff like this. And I even saw mm-hmm. a New York Times piece this last weekend uh, about the, the auto loan. And I just wonder if you knew anything about it. One of the things I will add uh, to as someone on the inside, the funniest thing is uh, Wells Fargo is in Chase, JP Morgan Chase are the two biggest ones. And mm-hmm. uh, if you don't make a, uh, if you Get repossessed by Wells Fargo or J.P. Morgan, then good luck getting yourself a car because they will finance anybody. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I haven't done any research on this in particular, but I just uh, typed in auto loan bubble into Start Page, and uh, don't worry, Bloomberg Business Week has uh, an article up. No, there's not a bubble in subprime auto loans. Oh, good. So there you go. You're, yeah, you're fine. I feel better. Well, one thing that the New York Times piece did mention, and of course, it's, you know, it's the New York Times, take it for what it's worth, was that the, a person is much more, is a much less likely to default on a car because they need it every day to get back mm. and forth to work than they would to be even to default on a house where the payments are just too big. They can't make them yeah. anymore. Yeah. And that is a insidious uh, yeah. idea yeah. that someone would keep, you know, because you have to keep the car to, to work in America. So anyway, it's just something for all of us to kind of keep our eyes on. And I didn't know about it until, you know, within the last year when I got into this field, I was like, whoa, this is, this is interesting. People, you know, signing up for something I would never sign up for, and they're thrilled to do it. Uh, so then, of course, Wells Fargo and, and them can all, you know, bundle it up and then, you know, sell it or, you know, I don't know, trade derivatives of it on, on the stock mm-hmm. market or whatnot. whatnot. So uh, something to, mm. to keep our eye on. Um, and last up, uh, let's see here. A few weeks ago, the State Department defended the right of the Ukraine government to bomb, or the Ukraine, Ukrainian government in Kiev to bomb its own citizens. What in the world is going on in Ukraine? I know that's a huge question, but what do you think the end goal for the U- U.S. was in Ukraine? Was it just to get, you know, uh, Putin stirred up? Did they know that? This, do you think that they knew this was going to happen? Do they want to get Ukraine into NATO? Uh, are they trying to get onto Russia's back door with Crimea? Um, right. What are, what are your well, thoughts on that? Yeah, well, let's not ask this in the past tense because I think it's still very much in play. And sure. maybe we haven't seen what the uh, the end game really is all about. Um, there's clearly, there's no way that uh, the State Department couldn't have known from its various early, very earliest attempts at, at getting Yanukovych out and instituting their puppet government that the, there would be confrontation with Russia in all of this. I mean, that was just kind of a given given the uh, the geopolitical nature of, of what they're doing and where they're doing it and in Russia's old backyard and and uh, all of the other threats that have been kind of encircling Russia through through NATO and the, the missile defense and all of this. I mean, this is clearly going to be a button-pushing event, and I think they, they, they knew that ahead of time. So I guess, yeah, the question is, why the provocation? Why now? Why are they pushing it this hard, this far? Um, and what, are they going to let off, or is this going to eventuate into some sort of hot conflict? I mean, interestingly enough, just in the last 24 hours, um, as we're recording this, there was a few hundred 
Russian military um, trucks that were repurposed as humanitarian aid vehicles. They were going to send them across the border into eastern Ukraine. Um, and Ukraine turned them back at the border, said you're not getting in here. So again, it just continues to ratchet up and up and up. And we've seen MH17 and the sanctions and then uh, Putin's counter sanctions with the, uh, the, the food ban. Just craziness. Um, and it really doesn't seem like there's any way to to ratchet down the tensions at this point. There's no face-saving deal that's possible as they continue to up the ante. I mean, especially, I think, with Russia counter-sanctioning with the food sanctions, I really think that's a significant step because that's a step closer to the brink in a way that there's it's, – it's really difficult to see how anyone could do this without backing down in a big way on the world stage, which doesn't happen very often. Um, what's Europe going to do? Okay, sorry we sanctioned you. We'll drop your san- our sanctions if you drop yours. I mean, I just don't see that happening. So, um, I, I, again, it, we've stepped right to the brink. And the, I guess the bigger question then is if they knew this was going to cause tension and potentially outright conflict, what would be – what is the, the goal of that conflict? Where does this end? Are we actually seeing the beginnings of a World War Three scenario? And that's something that, in fact, I just recorded an entire episode of my Beard World Order podcast with Guillermo Jimenez. We talked about World War Three scenarios and where this is all heading and, and whether or not this is going to, uh, to, to head to hot war. But we, that was something that we came to in that conversation that there's always – at any rate, no matter how these events start and, and whether or not they were planned that way, I mean, in a major – war type scenario there's always that that moving of the the goalposts or moving of the football further down the field towards the ultimate goals of shaping society in the ways that the powers that shouldn't be want and it's always always towards further consolidation of power i mean in the wake of world war one it was redrawing the entire map of the middle east and a lot of the rest of the world um, at the paris peace accords and the creation of the league of nations world war ii we saw the creation of bread and woods and the entire financial infrastructure of the last 70 years um, as well as the international monetary fund and what became the world bank as well as the united nations in the wake of another major war between world superpowers who can even imagine what's going to come out of that but you could imagine it's going to be something to do with global world government in as a way of saving us from from ever having to face that kind of tragedy ever again and uh it's really i mean it's it's horrific to think about and uh i think that's why this is being pushed so hard right now because it really is bringing this front and center where even even six months ago, I think people would have said, oh, you're a bit off your rocker for talking about World War Three." Now it's major daily headlines. So I think we have to be nervous about where this is coming from and what kind of agenda could be pushed through that. And it was kind of the conclusion, I think, that we came to in that conversation that although we can't really influence the, the bigger macro geo political, geoeconomic types of events ourselves. What we can do is resist that urge, which always happens in wartime, to rally around the flag or even just to support your your neighbors and you know people who go off to, to these types of wars to fight and die. Um, there's always that incredible societal urge. You, you have to be on the team. You have to be, you know, if you're not for or with us, you're against us. And uh, I think we have to resist that and resist the temptation to choose a side here or to become involved in one of these types of conflicts because when we start to put our identity and our our own sense of self into this then we can be easily manipulated into supporting the types of atrocities that we want to avoid and uh there's no other way to do that other than to to maintain our sense of self and identity and integrity and that's easier to 
to talk about than to do. But uh, but again, it's something that we're all going to have to face regardless of whether or not this actually does become a hot war. I mean, it's still just generally speaking in this new world order. It's every day we're trying to preserve who we are as human beings and fighting all of the various agendas, the transhumanist agendas and all of the other things that are trying to strip away from us our fundamental humanity and our ability to say no to the group think that wants us to go along to get along. So that's a very broad answer to a <laughs> specific geopolitical question. But that's where I think this is ultimately heading. And uh, I just don't see, unfortunately, any way of them backing down from this or backing away from it. Um, at this point, it's just a simmering pot, and you, you kind of have to wonder if it's going to boil over. Sure, sure. I, I, I doubt that this one will boil over. I may be wrong, but in my own personal... I just I, I feel like Putin... I don't want to say he's... A, you know, I'm definitely not in, of the camp that he's a good guy, but he just... He occasionally seems to be a couple steps ahead of the U.S., and, it, and has... I feel like he's trying not to play into their hands too much. Mm. And uh, I think, I don't know if that's going to build up, you know, escalate tension between, mm. but you know, in this, in this situation, but I feel like he's, he's a little bit more. I actually, let's, I heard, put it, yeah, let's put it this way. I don't think he wants direct military confrontation. No, I don't either. I mean, and I, regardless of why he doesn't want it. I, I, I mean, I think it just wouldn't serve their interests at this moment and it would not be good strategy so right i'm definitely not of the ilk like uh, you know you've pointed out before if he's you know against the u.s and nato he's a good guy i'm definitely not of that but you know i heard someone say recently that putin's playing a long game you know he's probably going to be in power till he, or he could stay in power till like some ridiculous like 2024 and mm-hmm. so he seems to be kind of playing a long game and and uh, i think he's a little bit more I don't want to say more. He just doesn't seem to be as uh, knee-jerk, having his knee-jerk reaction. And like you said, maybe it's just because he doesn't want to get into uh, a direct military conflict or whatnot. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess we have that going for us in in terms of that. But then again, um, this isn't obviously something that's just isolated to Ukraine or Eastern Europe. This is a part of a much broader phenomenon that's taking place in all sorts of places all around the globe right now. And there's so many different places where something could happen. I agree with you. It's generally, I mean, just historically speaking, it's generally not the place where you would expect some sort of major conflict to, to set off where it actually gets set off. So, you know, everyone's eyes are on Ukraine, um, but it could be anywhere, literally anywhere. It could be some sort of Azerbaijan-Armenian uh, skirmish as uh, one of the participants in our beard warlord conversation mentioned or it could be here in asia pacific region where i am or it could be in africa could be in latin america i mean you have no idea where these types of broader conflicts are going to start or how or why but uh but it is part of a, a kind of growing tapestry that we're seeing woven around us and uh, again i think we have to escape the urge to try to put our identity in one team or another in this false dialectic or to be scared by what's going on either. Indeed, yes. And yeah. I, I had a friend, and the reason I, one of the reasons I've kind of shaped my idea of what's going on in Ukraine is I had a friend contact me, and I was on one of my uh, just fasts from media. Like every now and then, I'll you know take a couple of days and just none. <laughs> and, and I had a friend call me. I just wanted to call you on the you know the day of the Lusitania sinking here before World War Three or whatever, and I just was like. What? Like, you know, and I, I, you know, found out about MH317 had gone down or whatever. And I just thought, you know what? That's just the way that he, 
you know, reiterated to me what he had kind of seen on, on the, the uh, mainstream media, just told me that that was what he was supposed to think. That's what we're supposed to fear. Yeah. And yeah. it turned out what the, the, uh, the United States says, well, it came from Russian occupied area. And Russia's like, well, aren't the, you know, the uh, Ukrainian supporters, the ones that, you know, tend to have this type of military. And then it kind of just like fizzled out and there was no more. You know, they did it, we did it, you know, all of a sudden it was, well, who knows who did it? <laughs> yeah. So, no, I think you're right. And I, I think that partly, I mean, certainly the alt media it, it takes uh, takes blame for the, the obsession with these events as well. Because, yeah. yeah, there's an incredible amount of energy that is put into researching these things. And, hey, I mean, I certainly understand that and I'm part of that type of uh, process. But, I mean, we also have to think about the way that we focus our our time and attention and energies is the way that you know things tend to play out because again if you if you're staring at a pothole in the road you're going to drive into it um (laughs) so you have to you have to look beyond that and you have to look beyond the the flow of events especially the ones that they want and and especially with that pre-made message as you point out i mean we have to be very wary of this in the way that it can be used to manipulate us and our attention and uh if we're you know i like the idea of a media fast and i should do that myself, but my audience would go crazy if I well, just did, left them for a few days. So. Didn't your uh, computer force you to do that just recently? It did. I must admit, it was quite nice to be able to detach, even a little bit. I was still on my laptop, and so I couldn't couldn't escape it completely. But uh, but it was nice to to sort of be free of the uh, the, the constant twenty four seven demands on 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 not just my attention but you know the psyche the sort of you know let's focus on the next big disaster um it is good to step away from that even just now and then just to regroup yourself and i I think about that from time to time you know a hundred years ago people did they had no idea what was going on in kiev right i mean like you know that, that lived in washington state at least uh you know what i mean they were people were they had they lived and had full lives with just the people that they knew and interacting with them and more attention was kind of paid to that and i know you know you and i are both pretty connected to you know what's going on and trying to keep track of it and whatnot but it is so every now and then it's just kind of cool to think like wait 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 i don't actually need all this this is all extra to my life my life really is my family my friends the people i see face to face every day um and that that is like i said it's I, sh- I wish I could say I was on a media fast this whole last two months that we haven't put out shows, but I, of course, have not. Uh, but, you know, here and there, I think it's good. Yeah, and, and that's actually maybe a good way of measuring what stories are worth putting all of that time and effort into and what ones aren't. Because um, here in my daily life in Japan, there's a lot of stories that come and go through the media cycle that I would never have known about if it wasn't for the media. But there are other stories that I would know about from my own daily interactions and through my life. For example, I mean, every time I come into the country here in Japan, I have to scan my fingerprints electronically (laughs) and get my digital photograph taken because America started doing that in, I think, 2004 as part of their entry procedures because of 9-11. So there were certain events that have a direct impact on our lives and there were certain events that we would never even know happened if uh, if they weren't you know, fed down our throats by a, a corporate media. So I, I think it is good to have that perspective and to, 
and, and to, to just try to step back from some of these stories that do consume people. So, um, and I've seen that happen and Hey, it's happened to me and I've gotten caught up in a lot of stories as well in the past. So it is good to just step back and try to maintain that perspective and try to think, is this a major story? Is this going to affect my life? Is this going to be something that we'll be talking about 10 years from now? Is this something that I can affect directly? Or is this just something that's made to make me wring my hands and feel bad? Yeah. Um, and again, I mean, it's, it's, it, at the end of the day, it comes down to what we can do in our lives and how that reflects in, in, our, in our actions and our, what we do on a day-to-day basis. And that's ultimately where I always come back to. And uh, it's not a satisfying answer for some people, but uh, I think it's, it's probably the best answer um, just in terms of who we are as human beings trying to relate to each other in this world. And, you know, I'm no wise person talking about this over here. I take it from someone who's been in positions where I'm wringing my hands like, oh, no, this is it. <laughs> Something terrible is is going to happen. And I've done it enough times to kind of realize, hey, this is not uh, this is not not good. But uh, you actually bring up something that is rather almost I don't know if macabre would be the right word, but I, I just I ran into this recently. I uh, booked a plane ticket and on the receipt for my plane ticket, there is now a 9-11 tax. And how far we've come that now the security, uh, as you like to say, kabuki theater, that is the, uh, you know, I guess this is not kabuki theater, but it's the security theater of the TSA lines and all of the security hoopla around flying has actually manifest itself into a literal tax. I don't even understand what that means. I had a 9-11 tax. If I could pull up the receipt, it's around here somewhere. But it is a $11 9-11 security tax. Which, so it's basically to fund the TSA groping and things of that sort? Yeah, precisely. Let me find wow. this. Yeah, and that's, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, look how far uh, we've, we've come. Yeah. Um, well, that just goes to show they'll tax absolutely anything, including national disasters. Um uh, just crazy, just craziness. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't f- happen to to find it right now. But I, I, there is a new nine eleven tax. It's like I can't believe they would call it that, though. That's yeah, just ridiculous. Find, I should, I should find this for uh, for posterity's sake. Check in online. To, to Can you imagine if you had a relative who died in the towers, paying a nine eleven tax every time you fly? That's pretty um, dark. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Where is that? Especially when you know who's really behind that. Yeah. Thank you for being a valued customer. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I can't seem to find it now, but if I can, I'll take a snapshot of it and throw it in the show notes, and uh, maybe I'll I'll shoot you an email of it. But yeah, we're gonna pay. We're gonna start paying a nine eleven security tax. So great, mm. great news. Mm. James, we've spanned the globe. I'm rambling. Um, I didn't ask you, but I'd like to now. Is there anything that you see that's important or that we didn't touch on that you'd like to at least mention uh, even briefly or, or however uh, in-depth you'd like? Um, my Federal Reserve documentary? <laughs> my fault. My fault. <laughs> and it's so good, I just filed it away as like, okay, perfect. Now I have somewhere to point uh, for a Federal Reserve documentary. When someone asks, what is that? I have the uh, the uh, this, the the seminal work of James. Wow, I don't know seminal. I'm I'm running out of it. I'm rambling. Please explain. Well, okay. Um, I, I don't know if your audience is aware, but I've been working on this Federal Reserve documentary. I worked on it for seven months. It is the most work I've ever put into any single project in my life, I think. And um, I'm pretty proud of the results. It. I hope, 
as you say, I hope it is a good 90-minute introduction um, that could serve as an education for people about the Federal Reserve and why it should be opposed. Even for people who know about the Fed, I, I'm pretty sure there will be facts and, and bits of pieces of info in there that you probably won't know about already. And I tried to source as much of it from the Fed directly as I could because, again, like so many of these other stories, even the sort of the official information indicts itself. Um, but basically, yes, I'm just trying to talk about the history of central banking in the United States. Uh, the second part of the documentary talks about the Federal Reserve specifically, what it is, how it functions. And then the third part of the documentary talking about solutions um, after introducing the idea that this isn't an agenda about money, it's an agenda about power and ultimately complete consolidation of power in the global government. Um, how do we counteract that? How can we get ourselves off of that system? So a uh, pretty ambitious project to do that in, in under 90 minutes. And uh, so far, it's been pretty successful. Like over 125,000 views in the first month of uh, a documentary on banking history and monetary policy. That's, uh, that's a success in my books, uh, just because it is such a, a potentially dry subject. But I've heard from people that it is a, a good intro for people who may be asleep on these issues. So I hope people use it as a tool. And and the transcript and the, the complete documentary and everything is up for free. CorporateReport.com slash Federal Reserve. Go out there, spread the link like wildfire, and, uh, and we'll get people awake to this issue. Absolutely. My first thoughts, uh, I talked to a buddy of mine who had also watched it and he says, you know, leave it to James to, to do a podcast or, a, you know, a, 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 what do you, a pod, that was actually a documentary, to do a documentary about a terrible, evil, you know, uh, empire of a, of a, of a uh, institution and end it on a positive note. He says, he, he ended, you know, I ended that podcast feeling good about it and only James can do that. And I thought that was a, a really, uh, really, uh, pro, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm too tired. I'm just ranting. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that feedback because I, that, is, that is the best feedback I can hear because at the end of the day, it isn't about just keeping you in fear and keeping you uh, worried about what's happening. It, it really is to remind you once again that the entire system, all of the bad things that we talk about rely on our participation, either actively or even just passively. But if we become active members of communities that are working towards helping each other and, and taking um, just some of the, uh, the, the values that I think we all share of, of helping our fellow human beings and, and being part of a community that, that cares about, uh, about each other, I think we can truly affect change, real change, meaningful change. And uh, I don't want my message ever to be one of just mere doom and gloom. And uh, so that's that's great uh, feedback to hear. Yeah, it's a documentary that you can, if you have friends that aren't sure about Federal Reserve, you're not sure, you can sit down with them and talk about it. You know, as Chris White pointed out long ago, if you hand someone a DVD, they can go watch it in the privacy of their own home and either say, that guy's a kook, or at least examine the ideas that you have. So, uh, you know, I encourage people to, and I'm sure it is for sale at CorbettReport.com, is that correct? Yes, there's a DVD um, version, uh, two disc set. One is the documentary itself. The other is the complete one-hour interview that I did last December with G. Edward Griffin. So um, that's a two DVD set uh, available from CorbettReport.com. Well, I encourage people to go and you know purchase that DVD and then you know you know do what they want with it. Search, show it to friends. Do whatever you can. It's a conversation starter. And if they don't purchase it, you know, like he's like James uh, may have mentioned, it's it is on YouTube. It is available for free. But uh, still, go to the website. 
uh, donate to uh, the Corbett Report. I feel like it's a really uh, important way to support independent media. I use it. Andrew uses it. Whether you know it or not, you're reaping the benefits of it by listening to this podcast because we both uh, you know, follow James's work closely. Uh, there's a subscriber uh, newsletter that he sends out. I encourage people to do that. It's What is it, like a dollar a month or something like that? Yeah, 100 yen a month. It's about a buck. About a buck a month, um, and you get a well-written newsletter that uh, you know your mail account may or may not put in your spam filter, but that's another story. <laughs> you get a well-written newsletter. It's just essentially it is it is uh, worth supporting. Is what I was going to say. So uh, please check that out and check out the uh, the Federal Reserve documentary, a work whom our own Andrew Hoffman actually had the gall to harass you about, that it was taking you too long. <laughs> I feel like uh, Paul McCartney when he was being harassed about, uh, oh, they, the Beatles, they've been in the studio for months now. They must be completely out of ideas. Meanwhile, they were working on uh, Sgt. Peppers. and Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul was just rubbing his hands. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're dried up. Oh, we're, just wait. We have no idea what to do next. So um, on a, of this, back to what we were talking about before, just real quick. On Delta.com, I have uh, air travel fees and uh, explanations of fees. And sure enough, the September 11th security fee a.k.a. U.S. Passenger Civil Aviation Security Fee, the U.S. government assessed fee of $5.60 per one-way trip with a U.S. emplanement uh, for security costs. Fee may accrue multiple times for itineraries with stopovers. So U.S. and domestic and international flights are all subject to a $5.60 per one-way trip with U.S. emplanement which I think means that if you have a couple layovers, you could be charged $5.60 each time you do. So there you go. The uh, seminal moment, I'm overusing words now, definitely a way. <laughs> seminal moment of our time, the September 11th, has now turned into a $5 tax for, of course, the government. I guess uh, tithing to the uh, state religion. Uh, <laughs> that's that's right. You have to you have to continue continue to feed the beast. So, um, and or Andrew, goodness, it, it really is late for me over here. So, uh, James, it's been a pleasure. I, I appreciate you coming on our little show and uh, for the support you've given us over the years, and we continue to uh, we'll continue to listen to you and uh, look to you as our news source as well. Um, like I said, everybody go to CorbettReport.com, and if you haven't, where have you been? Um, thanks again for being here, James, and I'll talk to everybody next week. And I'm going to hold you to this weekly schedule. Get back to podcasting. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, I need help. I need help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> copy of this podcast, as well as links to each story covered, are available at revelationsradionews.com. To contact Andrew and Tim, or to support Revelations Radio News, please visit revelationsradionews.com and click on the Contact tab or Support tab. Please check out the other podcasts at revelationsradionetwork.com. And thank you for your support of this podcast.
How old were you when you made your first TV development deal? 19. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. Right. 